And we invite you once again to take the Bible and your copies of God's Word. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Read the first 11 verses. We looked, started to look at that last time, but let's bow our heads as we pray before we read. Lord God, in the word of the psalmist, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Help me, Holy Spirit, to speak well of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. So Philippians 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. We thank the Lord. He's spoken to us in his holy word. You would know well Robert, Robert Murray McShane, who was the minister of what is now known as St. Peter's Free Church of Scotland, where um, in Dundee, I think David Robertson was for many years, Sinclair Ferguson was as well at times. No, and Murray McShane is known to us for his daily reading plan. I don't know whether you ever availed yourself of one of McShane's reading plans. But he, he'd taken us through the scriptures, but he died in his 20s. He hadn't reached his, it's very, it's hard to see really how much he, he, he wrote, but he didn't reach 30 and he died of tuberculosis, TB anyway. And during one of the terrible bouts of suffering and fever that plagued him, nine years before his death, on the 15th of November, 1832, he wrote a hymn in the midst of his, sickness and suffering entitled Jehovah Sekenu, the Lord our righteousness and it's a wonderful hymn it's an autobiographical hymn and it tells McShane's own testimony and the hymn you can find it I won't read all the verses but it began begins with an account of his spiritual condition before becoming a Christian he goes, I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Zekenu was nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over my soul, his soul, yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. Jehovah Zekenu was nothing to me. So there he is before he became a believer. And there were occasions when he heard the gospel preached and it moved him. 
but he didn't understand the gravity and the weight of his own sin, or that it was his sin that his Saviour died to bear away, that he might be made clean. He was still a stranger to grace and to God. But then one day, that changed, and he reflects it in his hymn. When free grace, grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fears shook me. I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah Zekenu, my saviour must be. Now he sees that everything in which he once placed his confidence was bankrupt and empty and he must have Christ if he's to have any hope at all. And then he wrote, My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished with boldness I came to drink at the fountain life given and free. Jehovah Zekenu is all things to me. McShane had been converted at last and now he rests wholly on the righteousness of another. We looked at that this morning, didn't we? No, lo no longer his own righteousness and goodness, but on the righteousness of Christ. The Lord is righteousness. Jehovah Zekenu. And in Philippians 3, the passage of scripture we just read, we too have a rare moment of autobiography from Paul. Where Paul does something similar to what Meshane did in Jehovah my righteousness, because he recounts his own story. He says where he used to put his confidence before God, and how all of that changed, how he came to see that his confidence in self and religion and in his own performance was bankrupt, and how he came to rest entirely on Jehovah Zekenu, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember the church in Philippi had come out or was facing a period of internal conflict. There were these false teachers, the Judaizers, who were saying that it's the gospel plus, that the Philippians must do more than just believe in Jesus, but they must add to their faith in Christ performance, legal performance. They must be circumcised. They must you, they must live, if you like, like an Old Testament Jew. They must conform themselves to the requirements of the Mosaic law. And in verses 1 to 3, Paul contrasted, we looked at that last time, true faith in Christ with the faith in the life of the false teachers. And he denounced them in sharp, pointed, direct terms. He called them dogs. He compares them to false prophets, the Baal prophets who mutilated themselves in order to manipulate the deity into blessing them. So why is Paul so pointed and sharp and exposing and denounced and denouncing the false teachers? Well, we'll see in Paul's autobiographical sketch in verses 4 to 11, Paul knows the danger of their error because he once embraced the same error himself. He was one of them once upon a time. And he knows that the road that these people are treading, the Judaizers, the Gospel Plus people, he knows that they're taking will end in disaster. He wants to save his beloved Philippians from making such a tragic error. So he begins to tell his own story. So that when Paul 
speak, talks about how he can move from trusting in his own righteousness into trusting in the righteousness of Christ. We also may be sure never to rest on ourselves, but always and only on the Saviour for our hope and confidence before God. We can never rest on ourselves. We have to rest on the Saviour. And the central motif you can see in this passage is an accounting metaphor. We'll move to the other metaphor next time, but and it'll be in the new year. But the central metaphor he uses to talk about all of this is an accounting metaphor. You see that in verse 7 and 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So he's dealing with profit and loss. I don't know if any of you have done any kind of accountancy, but with assets and liabilities and credit and debits. And, you know, you get these reports, profit and loss, income statements, and he's kind of using that kind of language. And as he talks about all of this, he's going to show how he himself moves, maybe it's helpful or not, from one accounting system to another. From an old way of life where he reckons certain things to be assets, to a new way of life where he sees those things in which he's trusted as assets, as liabilities. As he comes to trust no longer in his own assets, but to trust solely and only in the righteousness of Christ. Jehovah Zekenu. And so let's think about how he viewed those imagined and perceived assets as an unconverted man, first of all. The perceived assets of Paul, the unconverted Pharisee. So look at verses 5 and 6. This is Paul's testimony as an unconverted religious Jewish man. These, these are the assets upon which he based his confidence. He boasted in them. He starts with his inheritance and his pedigree. He was circumcised on the eighth day, verse 5. He was circumcised just right. Just right. In exact exact in accordance with the Mosaic law. Then, he is of the people of Israel. He's no Gentile dog. He's no Johnny-come-lately convert to Judaism. Not only is he of the people of Israel, then he starts piling it on. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Which is to say that he's no ordinary, ordinary Israelite like King Saul, his namesake. No. He comes from great Jewish pedigree. He is descended from the tribe of Benjamin. And then he moves on to speak about his choices as a Jewish man. He's the Hebrew of the Hebrews. And that simply means he speaks Aramaic, which is unusual for a Jew of the diaspora. He hasn't compromised with the Greco-Roman culture. With wit where he was brought up. So despite being brought up in Tarsus, far away from the Jewish homeland, he chose a path that led him into deep authenticity and deep authentic embrace of all that is Hebrew and all the language that went with it. He's a hardcore Hebrew. And verse 5, as to the law, 
He opted for the very strictest sect of Judaism. He was a Pharisee. You see how he piles up his credentials? <clears throat> and the word Pharisee means separated one. So his membership in this elite group puts him in the most narrowest, the most orthodox, the most conservative sect of Jewish religious life. And then as the zeal, verse 5, he, he can found no better account of his credentials than he used to hunt down and persecute Christians. So as to his righteousness under the law, no one could find fault with his exacting observance of every one of the 613 regulations of the, rab of the rabbinic code. So to anyone's reckoning, this is quite an impressive list. You know, he'd probably got quite a lot of letters after his name. He would be a doctor, wouldn't he, for sure. And then some. Gerald Hawthorne, in his commentary, said, by human standards, he was the best of the best. He was quite simply the best of the best. That's what Paul's resume said about him. If pedigree, performance, purity, what are what matters. If that is what matters, well, Paul, above all men, had grounds of confidence in himself. And he says that, doesn't he? If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, so if any of you start trotting out your stuff, whatever you bring up, I've got it more. You know, you know I've got more. Do you know what I mean? I've got more. And quite reasonably, as he outlines his resu resume, these are his assets. These are the things which he put his confidence in before he became a believer. But secondly, look at the new accounting of a converted man. A great change comes over the great apostle. He begins to think of his assets in a completely different way. He sees them as loss. So there's a new accounting system in place by which he makes an evaluation of what's really going on. And this is the new accounting of a converted man. The perceived assets of an unconverted man and now the new accounting, the new man of a converted man. Paul's no longer the man he was. He no longer sees things the way he used to. He exchanged his boasting for something completely different. He underwent a complete revolution, which is the real significance of the bookkeeping language in verses 7 and 8. Whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He no longer reckons values in the way that he used to. His method for making an evaluation has been radically changed. He takes all of his assets that he once put in the credit column of his account before God. He saw them valuable. When he stood before God, he, he could trot them out. They were valuable. And now he put everyone in the liability column. He moved them. Instead of being assets, no, they're liabilities. He counts them as loss, utter liabilities. He goes as far to say there's nothing in this world, there's nothing worthy to put your confidence in. He counted everything as loss. And there's no part of his past, no action, no monument 
nothing to which he will point in himself that he will count as a merit that will impress God or win acceptance for him at the bar of heaven's justice. What a lesson. Do we secretly think, actually God's going to look on me and smile at me because I've never done what he did. You know, I look the part. I've never missed a church service in my life. But these things, whether they're worthy or not, they don't count anything when it comes to merit before a holy God. And it's though he now thinks of those things in which he once boasted as misused credit cards. They appear like assets, but the more you use them, the more they simply drive you deeper and deeper into debt. So Paul is trusting in empty, deceptive assets that are not assets at all. And his eyes have been opened and seeing that what he thought was so valuable is actually loss. And he carried that crushing burden. He's in grave spiritual danger. So he made a new evaluation according to a different scale, a different set of measurements. He sees pedigree, performance and purity as liability or debt. But having Jesus Christ wipes the debt clean once and for all. And those liabilities, but if you have the righteousness of Christ, Jehovah Zekendu, it wipes the debt clean once for all. He is of surpassing value. His outweighs everything. Christ is the asset that outweighs everything else. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And Paul is using language that he uses nowhere else in the scriptures. Intimate language. Paul calls Jesus Christ my Lord. It's the only place he does that. My Lord. He'd been a Pharisee. He'd been persecuting the church. He's denied that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember the climax of the great Christ hymn in chapter 2 verse 11. Paul says the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To, and that's O curious, Lord to the glory of God the Father. And which is a title that no self-respecting Pharisee could use of anyone other than Almighty God himself. And here is Paul, the Hebrew of the Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, the Pharisee. Now that everything has changed in his heart, here he is before time, ahead of time, before that great day has dawned, bending his knee and saying of Jesus Christ who he once persecuted, saying of Jesus Christ who he rejected, saying of Jesus Christ who he repudiated, whose servants he persecuted, he is Lord. And more than that, he is my Lord. I have him. He is mine and I am his. And because I do, I have found something of infinite value. I am his and he is mine forever and forever. He's precious like nothing else. And in light of the value of Jesus Christ, all the empty trinkets in which he once trusted to Paul is now hopeless, helpless, 
rubbish loss. And all the boasting in his righteousness, he saw as liability and debt. And in Christ, he is rich indeed. Put your whole life in the scales on one side, Paul is saying. Put whatever you find to be of worth and value in the scales and put Jesus Christ, his obedience and blood in the other. He will always outweigh every other in what you've trusted. He is more valuable. He is more precious. He outweighs your very, 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 very best. Paul has come to know what the Judaizer in fact in the Philippian church have not understood. What we often forget, that you cannot boast in yourself. You cannot boast in yourself and have Christ. His righteousness is what you need. There's no room for self-confidence. And why ever would you trust in those deceptive lying assets that plunge you deeper and deeper into spiritual debt when the righteousness of Christ is available to you? That's Paul's question. You cannot get rich while plunging into debt. You do not need to trust yourself. It will destroy you in the end. You have to strive. You have to trust in Jehovah Zekenu, the righteousness of another, the righteousness of Christ. What do you make your boast in? In what do you put your confidence? Do you rest day by day in your pedigree, your family, your heritage, your parents, your rich history in the church? Do you rest in your performance? You never miss a Sunday, you read your Bible. Do you rest in your purity? Do you rest in your purity? You're a good man or you're a good woman. Your moral life. Paul says of people like you, beware of them. They're dangerous, I know, because I used to be one. You see, the Judaizers, they were saying, you can have Christ, but you need to be more moral. It's gospel plus. And he's saying, I used to be one. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Let me point you to the true riches where righteousness can only be found. Let me point you to Christ. That's what Paul is doing. So we see the perceived assets of an unconverted man. Those assets turn out to be liabilities. And we see the accounting system by which Paul made the evaluations been overhauled and revolutionised in his conversion. On that day, on the Damascus Road, where he saw the risen Christ. Jehovah Zekenu, his the Lord is righteousness and everything changed. And I want you to notice the real assets that Paul then itemises for us. This is what you get when you get Christ. This is how rich he makes us when he is ours and we are his. Here are the surpassing excellencies and worthiness of Christ and he itemises them and outlines them for us. There's just four things in verses 9 to 11. When you gain Christ, you gain union with him. It's such a wonderful thought, we should think of it more often. Union with Christ. We're in Christ. Paul writes in verse 9, and be found in him. It's a wonderful way to talk about being a Christian, that you're in him. This is the fountain blessing from which every other blessing flows. From it, everything else proceeds. So the centre of the Christian life is not some particular gift or grace bestowed on you to make your life better. It is Christ 
himself, you get Jesus in the gospel. He gives himself for you. You're united to him. You're united to him. You're bound to the Saviour forever. You're in him. And in him is every spiritual blessing made over to you in the heavenly places. So you're united to Christ. That's the first. Secondly, because you are in him, because you're united to Christ, you'll be found in him with his righteousness robing you. You're justified. You're in the sight of God. For the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you and received by faith alone. Verse 9, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So instead of your homespun, cobbled together self-righteousness, which is filthy rags, you get the righteousness of Christ himself. You get it not by your works, but by his. You get it by, not by your own attainment, but by his work on your behalf. Not by doing, but by trusting. You receive the verdict in the court of heaven, righteous for the righteousness of my son. There is no merit in your obedience. Were you to point to your very best works, your most pure motives, your most pious moments, if you put any confidence there, were you to trust in your religious attitudes and actions for acceptance before God and righteousness in his sight, you'd be damned forever. You cannot trust them to save you. You need the righteousness of another. You need an alien righteousness. You need the righteousness of Christ. And thirdly, Paul says that when you gain Christ, you're, you're in him. You have union with him. You are justified in him and you also gain, thirdly, sanctification in him. He changes you from the inside out. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, notice carefully the order of that statement. It's back to front, is it not? There's the power of the resurrection, a sharing in Christ's suffering, and finally conformity to his death. It's back to front. Suffering leads to death, and after death, resurrection. And that is the pattern. That is how it was for Christ. Crucified, suffering, he dies, is buried, and on the third day, he rose again. But for the Christian, resurrection power comes first. The power of the new life comes first. So when you come to Christ, you become a new creation. And in him you're changed. New life springs up, subduing your sin, generating you an appetite for holiness, teaching you to live in grateful obedience, not in order to earn God's favour, but because he's lavished it on you freely by his grace. And endowed and infused with a new life, resurrection power, Christians, Paul says, now share in Christ's suffering. You know we do not come to Christ to be spared suffering. We don't. Many of you have been plunged through the valley. Some of you are going through it right now. And you've discovered that there is a fellowship with Christ which is sweet in the dark and sore days.
You've got nothing else to fall back on sometimes. Just the fellowship with Christ. Communion with Jesus. Who plunged the depths further than you can ever imagine. And you have discovered that in him, in him, even your sorest trials are not purposeless. They have a design. Suffering in the Christian life is surgical because God is wielding the scalpel of suffering for your sanctification. And fourthly, a call to embrace the surpassing value of knowing Christ. The purpose of sharing in Christ's sufferings is that we might become like him in his death, that we might die to self and sin and live only for his glory and praise. God is dealing with the diseases of your heart by your trials, hard and sore though they may be. It's like a diamond against that black velvet cushion. The sufficiency, the beauty, the excellency and the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ shines all the brighter in the context of trials. He shows us that he is sufficient, that he is enough in the worst of times. And in the suffering and in the sorrow, he can be relied on and trusted on. Paul is saying he is enough. He keeps saying it, Christ is enough. When he takes you into the valley, it is to show you that he is the one that who you can rest on. When you're in the valley, he is the one. So union with Christ, leading to justification, sanctification, and glorification. When suffering is undone and the grip of death is broken and that new life which has started growing within you overflows and undoes and undoes the grave so that you will be raised incorruptible to dwell with the Saviour who bore your sins in his body on the tree. Face to face. And it will be unending joy. And it will be perfect delight. That's what you get in Jesus. That's Paul's testimony. You're revolutionised. You have a right standing in the courts of heaven. You have peace with God. You have a clear conscience. A change of life, reconfigured, remodelled by the grace of God which is at work in you. And even in your trials, conforming you to be like your Saviour. And finally, one day, a destiny filled with joy and glory that will never end. Take your richest boasts, Paul is saying, and I've got more than you, is what he's saying. Whatever you've got, I've got more. Take all of them, and then compare them to those four things that you gain in Christ. Union with him. Justification declared righteous, sanctification and glorification. They will appear as they really are, threadbare, threadbare poultry, meagre things, bankrupt and empty. It is Jesus that you need. He is enough. It's his righteousness alone. So flee to and rest in him. Only he can win acceptance for you before God. Three days after he penned that autobiographical hymn that we read at the beginning, McShane's fever broke. And on the 18th of November, 
Three days afterwards, he wrote of that season of sickness and suffering and pain. And he said, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Learn more and more the value of Jehovah Sekendi. The Lord took him into the valley that he might learn more of the value of Jesus, his righteousness. And the Lord Jesus is here today pleading with you that you would trust in his righteousness alone, that you would find Jehovah Zekendi. Some of you are in the valley and the Lord Jesus would plead with you to trust in his righteousness alone, to see the diamond of his sufficiency sparkles more brightly in the gloom of your trials and to rest on him alone. Christ is the treasure buried in a field who for joy we gladly sell all that we have that we might possess it. Paul is saying, let goods and kindred go this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. I think Paul is saying from his own testimony that Jesus Christ is enough. His righteousness is sufficient. I trust him and everything else is lost compared with knowing him. Is that your confession? That Christ is all and everything else is lost? He is gain, everything else is liability and I will trust in him. May God's grace, may it be so. Amen.